1: Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. My name is Chris and you may have seen some reports in the media recently saying that you need to do five times as much exercise as you thought you did. Uh, this caused a bit of a stir in the media. Um you didn't see this one?
0: No, I didn't I didn't actually see that one. No. Maybe I, I, I just blanked it. I
1: don't know how much I'm meant to do, so I'm
0: not
2: <laughs> right. really
1: worried about it. Right. Well I'm I've clearly got the the wrong audience <laughs> here. Uh, but you're you're both like incredibly healthy, so I'm not too concerned. Thanks, Chris. Um but uh no look we're gonna look at that. Um see, there was a report that came out that, that essentially said the recommendations for exercise are Low to protect you against various diseases. It seems,
0: it seems like a like a big jump.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does seem like a big jump. So I'm going to look into that and the, where they got this this new figure from, yeah. and some of the criticism of this, but what it all actually means as well. Um, you know, I guess, I guess I'm getting a bit of a back to a bender of this sort of you know lifestyle and medical research recommendations. But hey, it's always you're fun. on
0: a you're on a lifestyle and oh, medical medical trial. I'm on it for life, aren't I? Yeah, you're.
1: <laughs> Yeah. We all are, really. We all are. Anyway, so we'll find out about that in a moment. Stu, what do you got for us?
2: Um, well, speaking of health, I'm actually going to be talking about viruses. Um, not viruses that affect humans, but viruses need hosts in order to survive. So how do viruses not kill all of their hosts and then die out themselves? That's a very good question. It is. Yeah. Um, there's some more more recent research that has shown very specifically that some viruses... Uh, can ensure that their hosts survive, and I'll explain oh, how they do that. Just like zombies? No, 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 no. Just actually something, some a, a, a result of their infection.
1: Okay, yeah. great. And we will have a story from Manisha. She's been telling, been telling us about the wildlife in the Ngoro Ngoro conservation area, sort of crater area in Africa. So yes, all the the all the, the creatures that make that kind of enclosed, uh, lost world type system a home. On with the show. Alright, for those of us who follow these things, like I said, there has been a bit of a stir recently over an article... Published by Australian scientists did this research. Um, It was published in the British Medical Journal, though, and essentially said that the the recommendations from the World Health Organization um, for exercise, which are basically you need to do 150 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise per week, they're saying that needs to be increased by about five times in order to protect against disease. So the, 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 the existing recommendation is about 30 minutes a day, is that...? Yeah, roughly. But yeah. it's 150 per week um, of, of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of of high intensity, if you want to do it that way. Um, so, yeah. And as I'm getting sort of a bit of a vibe here, that it, people aren't really happy with this kind of notion that you need to do five times It just that.
0: seems, like I said, it seems like a huge jump. Yeah. How, how could they have gotten it so wrong? Which is like, well, we forgot to... Carry the five.
1: Well, well okay. Well, let's, let's look at what they've done. Because what they're trying to do is actually quite clever.
0: Okay. okay.
1: So what they've done is they've, looked, they've done a systematic review. This is not just their own kind of original research. They've done a review of compiling all the existing research. Oh, they included 174 articles, and they looked at not just things like leisure activity, like where you go out and actually do some exercise, but all the physical activity, um, that you might do, including like, you know, domestic work, transportation, this kind of stuff. And this is, you know, a lot of the studies normally had in the past have focused just on the leisure time activity, recreational activity. Right, okay. And how much, you know, of that you need to do. But so they're trying to counter, ca- uncover the, all... In the
0: incidental activity.
1: Yeah, all physical activity. And they express it in what they call a metabolic equivalent or MET, minutes per week, which then have to be translated back into actual exercise because the, essentially, you know, a minute of exercise is... Like counts for a about, I think a minute of moderate exercise counts for roughly about four minutes of metabolic equivalent. This is why they seem to have worked on right. Yeah, so it gets complicated. Maybe I shouldn't talk about the metabolic equivalent minutes because it's going to get very complicated. Is that,
2: yeah, is that metabolic equivalent? Is that just sitting there doing nothing? Is that the equivalent? yeah? So I think it's your basic rate.
1: So okay, you know, and it, but this is good. This is a good approach because it captures, like I said, it captures all the incidental activities, all your work activities, that kind of stuff, and sort of conversely covers the effect of our sedentary lifestyle. Now, the other thing they did with this though is they tried to establish um, a dose response curve, trying to work out, you know, instead of saying this much exercise, what will benefit for you? Saying, what do all these studies show us about the increasing amount of exercise and what that will do for you? And, do, and try to do a graph of the benefit of exercise. Uh, and they looked at a range of diseases. They looked at breast cancer, colon cancer, diabetes, ischemic heart disease, and ischemic stroke. Um, ischemic is where it's kind of a clot forms and blocks off the blood supply. So the result they get actually um, is fairly unsurprising on the surface of it. So essentially what they got is that the more exercise you do, the better effect it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, for diabetes, um, for instance, the recommended level from the World Health Organization, which is this 150 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise, counts to 600 MET minutes per week. Um, that reduces your risk of diabetes by about 2%. Um, but if you go up to 3,600 MET minutes per week, which I think is six times the amount, then it reduces by an additional 19%. Wow. So that is a significant risk reduction. This is what they're getting at saying, well, you know, you can reduce it by 2% if you do what the World Health Organization does, but if you want to get a real benefit, then you need to do much more. Um, So generally, things like heart disease and stroke, you kind of had a benefit at lower levels, but yeah, for diabetes and for the cancers, you needed to do much more exercise to get um, much effect. So they recommend overall about 3,000 to 4,000 of these MET minutes per week, which I said is about five times the original. So five times 150 is... 750 minutes of exercise per week. So, yes, that's what they did and why they came to this conclusion. Uh, But, yes, there has been a lot of criticism, Um, not in the least being that this is kind of based on a whole bunch of other studies about people trying to report and estimate the amount of this non-leisure time activity, which is actually fairly difficult to do or recall how much incidental Um, activity you have done. Um, So yeah, some of those estimates are unreliable and some of the the actual figures, when you look at them and look at the high extremes of of these exercise levels I talk about, it creates about 19 hours a day of activity, which is probably a little bit unrealistic for most people. Um, there's some other weird things. Something I didn't see come up in the criticism, but I kind of noticed, um, You know, I'm not saying I'm an expert at the statistics and these things, but you look at the- um, look at <laughs> A their... little
0: bit you're saying that though.
1: No, I'm not, I'm not actually not saying that. I'm not <laughs> going to claim. I'm just saying it's me in my bald ignorance. This is just something you've noticed. I noticed, when they've got their little graph and they show on their graph all the different studies and the uncertainty, like the error bars and all the studies and then the nice yep. little dose response curve. The errors are huge. There's basically this big mass of all these errors and they've drawn this nice smooth curve in between it. So I think they've done some very- sophisticated statistical analysis, should we put it that way, to get a nice, smooth dose response curve and they, out of this messy data.
0: And did they address that at all? No, they
1: didn't. They just basically said, we were very clever and we did a lot of work to get this a nice curve. <laughs> um, but look, the main criticism has been the obvious one, as it does sound a bit unrealistic. So people have pointed out, for instance, that in Australia, about 56% of people meet this 150 minutes per week guideline. So the basic... World Health Organization guidelines. Incidentally, the um, Australian government in the last couple of years has increased the recommendations. They've doubled that recommendation anyway. So the government recommendation is now like 300 minutes of exercise per week. So, yeah, 30 minutes a day has already been increased, I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. Stu. But with this new um, amount, which is like five times that, uh, fewer than 1% of people would meet this new paper's recommendations. So it's kind of going, well, really, is it a really sick thing? Can anyone actually achieve this? You know, it's starting to get um, beyond the realms of what's possible. And that's certainly been the tone you've seen in some of the media reporting, as in essentially. you know, you might think you'd be doing enough exercise. Well, it turns out that it's not going to protect you. You know, you're all doomed anyway, and you've got this unachievable target, so let's all just give up and eat chips. Um, that's not what they actually said. But it's no surprise that then you get follow-up reports. Like, there was a report in a um, newspaper the other day. Um, I won't name the newspaper. It was The Herald Sun. Um, and essentially, they were reporting that there was going to be a new study on the effect of a long-term endurance exercise on athletes, on athletes. Mm. On, Athletes. And basically, the, the articles pitched that, oh, is too much exercise bad for you? So trying to turn it around and suggest, well, you know, maybe it's too much exercise bad for you, which is not the point at all, anyway. So... Yeah, it's been a bit of a backlash um, and uh, there is concern about what it does as a public health message. I think that is kind of a um, a real concern there, but that's that's a, kind of a separate question as well. Um, you need to really do a study of what the effect is of on public health of having these conflicting things. It might be that if you aim the target higher, then people will aspire more. I don't know. Um, but, you know, there's also, like I said, the original studies that the bases on, there's some shortcomings there. They said there need to be more objectively measured ones where people are carrying like, you know, Pedometers and that kind of stuff to really measure how much they're really moving, but well, maybe um, there's a lot of
2: data available at the moment. Some some of the some of those um, you know wearable exercise devices might be collecting useful data for the, exactly that kind of that's that's thing, the kind of in thing in the future anyway. Yeah, so well, there are um, some studies. Or, yeah. you
0: know, Pokemon Go might just be... Um, that's that doesn't really <laughs> measure your activity, in, in, Claire. Increasing all yeah. of our activities. Well, it can be, yeah. yeah. Making us...
1: The trouble is with these kind of things, when you're studying stuff like cancers and heart disease and that kind of stuff, you need to do it over a long period of time. Um, so, yeah, it takes a while to get... The technology is there now, but it takes a while to actually get the data out of that kind of thing. But, look, I think on an individual level... I said, the result is not really a surprise. It is telling you that more exercise is better. So I think it's also useful to consider the view that all activity is important, so not just your recreational leisure activity. So just be more active generally, you know, um, do more housework and gardening, that kind of stuff.
0: <laughs> get off, a, get get off a, a train station or a train exactly.
1: stop Exactly. Um, walking and cycling, for transport. climb the stairs. Take climb the, the stairs, stairs. Take the stairs, that kind of stuff. And it'll make you feel good, so what have you got to lose anyway? I think that's the, um, that's the point that I'm trying to make in a roundabout way.
2: Science. The final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science. Our ongoing mission to explain strange new words. To seek out new science and new explanations. To boldly go where no radio has gone before. So viruses are non-living things which share some characteristics of living organisms in that they contain sequences of DNA.
1: Is this a consensus that they're non-living? Is this what we've? Well, they they
2: can't they can't do they can't they, do anything they have like... they have no metabolism right? Okay, so they're basically just bits of DNA, they're packs of DNA material, or, or RNA, or RNA, yes. Um, But so unlike living organisms, viruses can't replicate DNA themselves and they require a host organism to do that for them. Right. Um, And so what they do is they jump into their appropriate host, hijack the DNA replication mechanisms of the host in order to multiply and infect more host organisms. So they get the cells of the host to make more viruses and then... Yeah. Yeah. And uh, generally speaking... The host gets less healthy as a result of being infected by viruses. Um, so this obviously presents something of a problem to a virus, in that if it continues to weaken its host population, it may eventually find no suitable hosts to infect. Mm. If it, you know, if, it, yeah. if, it's, if it's really successful at hijacking the uh the mechanisms of DNA replication, then it could potentially weaken the host and kill it and then where is the virus gonna live? Um Or not live, it's not or not live because yeah. it's not alive. Or not live because it's not alive. Where's where's it going to it uh, exist? Have, yeah, dwell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dwell. Um, yeah. Inhabit.
0: Yeah.
2: So in plant populations, viruses are very common and many economically important plant species are susceptible to virus infection. And in some recent work on viruses of the Solanaceae family, which... Oh,
0: nightshades!
2: Nightshades, correct. Thank uh, you. Tomatoes and potatoes. Thank you,
0: agriculture 101.
2: Um, so, yeah, studying viruses of the Solanaceae family, they've found... An unusual side effect of virus infection in some of these species. So work published in August in the journal PLOS One has shown that in some cases, virus infection may actually enhance the survival of the infected plant species.
0: What?
2: So when plants are attacked by pests and diseases, they will often emit the plants will emit volatile aromatic chemicals as a response. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these chemicals are also detectable by some insects, so
0: oh as as a like a lure like does that lure the insects to the plant? Yes, right,
2: yes, so what they found was that when um when they as infected tomato plants with cucumber mosaic virus, they attracted a higher number of bumblebees <laughs> to pollinate the flowers <laughs> of the tomatoes, wow. so the higher Do- Pollination rates mean greater numbers of seeds are formed and the plant has more offspring and will proliferate, which means the virus continues to have uh, a high number of available hosts to infect. Interesting.
0: That's very interesting.
2: Um, so the virus seems to induce higher levels of aromatics that are attractive to bumblebees. So plants that are susceptible to virus infection end up having more offspring Mm. As a result of being infected.
0: Wow! Um, so so that...
1: one one thing that you find is that the the genomes of many species, including humans, have got bits of DNA that were came from viruses originally. Is it possible that one day that the tomatoes will just absorb the virus? And well, it's
2: it's potentially if if it if if whatever's making this effect yeah. is is absorbed into the genome of the tomato plants, yeah. then yeah, sure, it can just be. Hmm. Uh, a, a survival advantage for the tomato from yeah. then on. Um, the uh, the release of these volatiles also attracts other insects, including aphids, which by oh, which not good. by sucking sap from the stem of infected plants can then carry the virus to new host plants. That's good for the virus, I guess. It's good for the virus. Yeah. Good so, for the virus. Good for the virus. So the virus gets spread around. The virus doesn't
1: care.
0: But also good for the plant in that it's oh maybe not that part, but. Like when it's, when it's attracting pollinators, it's sort of like the plant's last ditch effort to sort of like, oh, I'm infected by this virus. Now I'm going to attract pollinators and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, use all my, um, available resources to try and produce as much seed as as possible. Produce as much seed as possible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, they also found that there's a specific protein in the, uh, cucumber mosaic virus that was responsible for the change in the chemical release when the plants are infected. Um, And this protein shuts down the natural defence of the host plant. So when viruses without this particular 2B protein were introduced to plants, they didn't... Or it
1: could be not 2B as well.
2: Well, (laughs) some plants... (laughs) That that is the question, really. that is the question. Um, But, yeah, so without this 2B protein, um, viruses didn't produce the effect of producing these extra volatile right? but in viruses where it is present then it has the the effect of um, Mm. producing them so what what the 2b protein actually does is binds onto the molecules that should be attacking the virus and chopping it up into little pieces Hmm. so this 2b protein blocks that and lets the virus replicate and continue and makes the plant produce more uh, aromatics and that Brings the bumblebees and brings the aphids who carry the virus around. So it's it's all just a happy little uh, ecosystem Gosh. inside the tomato plant.
1: Nature is complicated.
0: That is complicated. Yeah. And from an agricultural perspective, like that would be extremely frustrating for Pete, for farmers who are trying to and horticulturalists, right? Well, the,
2: yeah. The the most productive plants might be the ones with the virus infected. <laughs> it just goes yeah. to show though that that there's no way of predicting what is going to be an advantage and what isn't going to be an advantage when, you, when you're looking at complex interactions mm-hmm. in, in the mm-hmm.
1: wild. Right. So when we get a cold, like a cold virus, is there possible good effects from that as well? You get to stay at home and watch TV, I guess. Yeah, you get to stay home and watch Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> All around Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
3: Okay, so today I'm gonna to be talking about the Nogoro Nogoro Crater. Nogoro Nagoro. Nagoro Nogoro. The, the, the what? The Nogoro Nogoro Crater. It's actually it's um one of the uh, seven natural wonders of Africa. Oh. Yeah. Okay, so it's the Nogoro Nogoro Crater. Please say it with me. Nogoro Nogoro. Yeah, it's so much fun, isn't it? Um okay, so the crater is located in the Nagoro conservation area. Of which of course aptly named, which is right next to the Serengeti in um in northern Tanzania. Okay. And this, the Nogoro Nogoro crater, is the world's largest inactive, intact, unfilled volcanic Caldera? Caldera. Caldera. Caldera? Caldera, yes. I don't know. A caldera, anyways, is a cauldron-like volcanic crater, and it's it's formed when um, the empty magma chamber of a volcano yeah. collapses in on itself. Okay. So Nagoro Nagoro was formed when the volcano exploded and then collapsed in on itself, and this happened almost 4 million years ago.
1: How, how big are we talking?
3: Yeah, okay, so it is... 610 meters deep the crater extends 19 kilometers across and it spans nearly 260 square kilometers so that's a pretty large crater the largest crater um so this site is actually really important and it's actually really interesting because it's it forms this really um unique ecosystem because it's what Mm. we called a um, natural enclosure Ah, so if you imagine like the walls of the crater basically form a fence around this beautiful intact um, ecosystem
1: so you often see this in movies where there's like kind of of a lost world inside a volcano and dinosaurs and things in there yeah
3: exactly and the big like ferns and there's like a fresh free-flowing river yeah so that's the kind of uh feel that the Nagoro Nagoro crater has
1: but there aren't dinosaurs in there Oh, oh, but then. there
3: are. No, um, it's oh. actually, it's just home to, you know, your average, like, black rhinoceros and Cape buffalo and, like, okay. hippopotamus and wildebeest and zebras. So, like, this really, or sorry, zebras. Sorry. Um, but, yeah, it's this really beautiful ecosystem. Um, and with, they're
1: sort of protected by the volcano, are they? Uh,
3: So, okay. So, it's, oh, so the Nagoro Nagoro actually has a kind of sad story. Oh. Okay, so it's six hundred meters deep. It's um, some of the species like the wildebeest and the zebras, and um, they have antelope and things like that. They they'll migrate with the wet and the dry season, so they'll come in and out of the um, the system. But it's an enclosed. Uh, it's a natural enclosure so some species they don't leave they don't migrate other species don't or under other individuals don't come into the populations and then we hit a um, massive side effect and the Nagoro Nagoro crater ecosystem is facing a massive inbreeding sort of situation especially amongst the um, Maasai the Maasai lions in the region.
1: Oh, okay. So the lions aren't migrating; they just hang around. in Yeah.
3: Their... So the lions. Okay. So these lions are kind of. They're also really particular. So the prides don't allow for a lot of migration and movement between. And because they've been in these um, in the crater ecosystem for so long, they've become incredibly inbred. Especially because um, of a couple a couple events over their history that's led to like some severe bottlenecking. So basically, the entire population. Uh, was almost dwindled down to just some individuals, and then there was a high level of inbreeding amongst those individuals to pull the population back up.
1: Because I imagine when you have this kind of enclosure like that, it's also very tempting for humans to go in there and hunt things to extinction yeah. and that kind of stuff.
3: So the Maasai lions are also really, um, so because their populations are so low, um, when they are hunted, it has a very um, dramatic effect on the population's uh, ability to survive. So there is a fair bit of that um, human interaction and the human role playing into it as well. Uh, but the big, the big thing that's really killing this population is the inbreeding. Uh, so we all know that inbreeding can it, it can weaken a gene pool because the population um, has fewer variation uh, or less variation in, in its genetic material. So they, it's less robust. So it can't fight against things like disease as well. And that's basically the big thing that's been uh, that's driven this population uh, to or has reduced this population so much. Um, The population has reduced down to about 62 individuals, and that was a number back in uh, 2003. So Mm -hmm. it may be a bit different now. I couldn't find any newer numbers on the population. But um, the. So
1: that's that's not just one pride, there's a few prides in there, are there?
3: yeah it 's supposed to be a few prides and but it 's the also the densest population of oh. Maasai lions, so
1: a lot of competition then you think
3: yeah so it's it 's kind of uh i don 't know i don 't really know how to uh, like there 's a lot of funny things happening in the crater that are just a bit different from the rest of the lion populations in um in Tanzania. So um, the population was struck by deadly disease outbreaks between 1962 and 2002. And the first major population crash occurred in 1962 and the population dropped to just 12 individuals. So that's where the one of the biggest bottlenecking events for this population occurred. And then it eventually recovered to about 100 individuals around 1975. But then it started to slowly decline again since then. And finally, then in 2001, 34% of the population died in just a few short months between January and April due to uh, tick-borne diseases and canine distemper. So because of disease, they lost another 34% of the population. So now, currently, researchers are trying to uh, devise a plan to introduce Lions from outside prides um, into the populations to help promote the gene pool, but as I mentioned, the prides don't take on um, migrants very easily, so it may not be very successful. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot to work through yeah, yeah. for this population. But hopefully, hopefully, sometime soon, I'll be able to report on a happy, good news story about the Maasai lions. Um, the other very important site on the Nagora-Nagora Conservation Area it um, it protects what is known as the Oldupe or the Old Olduvae uh, Gorge um, which is considered to be the seat of humanity oh. the, this gorge was the discovery site for the earliest known specimen of the Homo habilis which is thought to be the earliest Homo species and it was also the site of the discovery of the earliest Hominidae Hominidae which is the family commonly known as the great apes and it includes humans orang- orangutans um, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos. So the great right. apes, the earliest great apes. Um, and it's believed that some million years ago, the um, the site, so the gorge, was actually a large lake and that the crater was surrounded by a number of different populations. And so this was like this um, human, beautiful, green... Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden sort of-esque thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, so these specimens are actually, they're the oldest, as I mentioned, and they date all the way back to about two million, uh, to nearly two million years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Anyways, so the Nagoro Nagoro Conservation Area, it's uh, not only home to a very unique and interesting ecosystem, but it also is a paleoanthropological wonder of the world. So if you're thinking of your next holiday destination maybe North Tanzania is a good place to go.
1: Nago to Nagoro Nagoro.
3: Nagoro Nagoro <laughs>
1: That is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is, of course, recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at Lost Inside. that's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter or you can find us on Facebook. Just search for Lost in Science on 3CR. Or you can listen to our podcast or you can listen to us next week once again when. Stuart, Claire, Manisha and Chris will get Lost Lost in Science.
0: Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.